morning is from Philippians. We are in chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Christ Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of God. It has been brutally hot outside the last few weeks. And in the summer, when your kids aren't in school and it's too hot to go to the park because all of the slides are on fire, um, we have to get creative. And so one of the places we like to take our kids is to the Exploration Place downtown, which is right on the river. It's super cool. Even if you're an adult, it's a good time. And uh, we took our kids, I take our kids there all the time. This week we went, and one of their favorite parts that they have in Wichita is the air capital, you know, of, of the world. So we'd love to, they have a whole a- aviation uh, area. And one of the things they have is a flight simulator. Now, when my kids fly in the flight simulator, it always starts off great, right? We're flying, things are fun. But the moment they start to dive bomb right into a, you know, residential zone, I'm like, guys, you got to stop doing that. And then the glass shatters, we have to start over. Um, but one time, I finally let, Pierce finally let me take, take over, and I had a really good time. I thought, I could be a pilot. This is really pleasant. I landed the plane. Things were good. Um, we've been in this uh, sermon series now, and I had planned originally to take us all the way into September, um, so I had all my sermons planned out. I was excited to preach them. Well, we've had a little bit of change of plans. There's been some changes at Eastminster, and because of that, we've decided Uh, to pause this service uh, after next week. And so I'm having to return home a little more quickly than I anticipated, uh, which means we're going to cover a lot more ground more quickly, but we're going to wrap up chapter three uh, tonight, and then we're going to finish with what I think is the heart and soul uh, of Paul's message next week by looking at what he calls the secret. So next week, that's where we'll be. And tonight, we're going to look at the end of chapter three, because I think this brings us back to where we started. That said, imagine for a second, if you will, you're a first century Philippian. You live right on the edge of Greece, a few miles inland from the Aegean Sea, the hot Mediterranean Valley. Um, Philippi is buzzing with life, okay? Tens of thousands of Romans are moving to the city from all over the empire. In fact, the city reminds you quite a bit of Rome. The layout of the streets, the architecture, the statues on every corner with Latin inscriptions. It's like it's Rome all over again. Now, you haven't been there too long. Um, you were once a Roman soldier, a patriot. You, you fought for your country. You, you were given your life to the empire with a sword and shield in hand. And on the ground of Macedonia, it's dyed red with your blood. But you're not sorry about it because you fought for honor. 
In fact, you're proud to be a citizen in the eternal city, to be willing to give your life for Caesar. He blessed you with the plot of land. He blessed you um, right in the heart of Philippi, free from taxes, which is a really, really good deal. You, you thank him for your life. And that's why you go to the temple every week. You go to the temple, you burn incense, and then you worship Caesar as Kyrios or Lord. You say, Caesar is Lord. And the reason you do that is because he gave you life. In a, in, in a weird way, he's kind of like a savior. He, he was able to give you land and, and a place to live freely, and, and you feel like you owe something to him. And then this guy named Paul shows up. He's this Jewish rabbi from Jerusalem, and he dropped like a bomb on Philippi because he showed up and claimed that a Jew by the name of Jesus, a would-be Messiah, was crucified by your army in a city called Jerusalem. And that crucified Messiah was not just an ordinary person, but he was actually the king of the world. The creator of the universe raised Jesus from the dead, and now Jesus is Lord. At least that's what Paul claimed. And just by way of mathematics, that means that Caesar cannot be Lord. Caesar cannot be king because there is a new true king. That is Jesus. And that means that the empire of Rome is actually a parody while reality is the kingdom of God. This is the dangerous Evangelion, uh, which is a, a, a dangerous gospel. This, this good news, this royal announcement that Jesus is king. And so for obvious reasons, Paul is run out of town as a threat to the empire, um, but he left behind him a church. It was kind of a crazy church. It was made up of men and women. Crazy, right? Not just men, but women too. There were masters and slaves. That was unheard of. There were Latins and barbarians. There were Greeks and Jews, right? From all over the empire, you could call it kind of a melting pot in a way. And you found yourself drawn to this Jesus and drawn to this odd combination of people called the church, and you found yourself believing that Jesus was indeed Lord, and that he created, um, that this sort of created an attention about you and this group of people, because on one hand, you're a Roman citizen and a patriot, and that's part of your identity. You're a citizen of an eternal city, but on the other hand, you follow this person called Jesus. And all of your ex-army buddies all over in Antioch, uh, they're, they're calling your movement the Christian movement. They give you a name, Christians. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God, and you're sort of torn between two kingdoms, the kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of God. And then one day out of the blue, you show up at Lydia's house. It's a Sunday night. It's around dinner time. You pack in um, with all the friends and family who follow Jesus in Philippi for the bread and the cup. And you gather together, there's about 30 or 40 of you, and it just, it's like you can't even breathe, there's so many people. And guess who shows up? Out of the blue, Aphrodite shows up. He's back. You thought he was dead. You were convinced that he was long gone at this point. But he shows up out of the blue. He's, he's back alive from Rome. 
and he's back with a letter from Paul, who's currently in prison. This would be like receiving a letter from someone whom you, you have absolutely immense respect for, haven't heard from in ages, and maybe thought he was even dead. But to get this letter was such a profound, incredible moment. And so he stands in this gathering, and he reads aloud this letter from Paul, who's in prison. He reads it all in one sitting. And when he gets to the line that we just read in our passage, the citizenship in heaven, you feel chills on the back of your spine because you know how dangerous that statement actually is. You know also that it's going to require not just a passive listening, but it's actually going to call you to action, to actually make a decision. Because in that moment, when you hear that line, you know you're going to be asked to do something that's absolutely going to change your life. Is your primary loyalty to the empire, to the kingdom of Caesar, or is your loyalty to Jesus? The reality of the gospel of Jesus is that it brings you to this point of of sort of a crossroads. Where is your loyalty going to lie? Whether you're in the first century, a Philippian who's torn between loyalty to the empire or Jesus, or whether you're in the 21st century, a Wichitan, right? Your loyalty might be um, torn between Jesus and modern day Caesars of money, sex, and power, or whatever that might be. But the gospel of Jesus brings you to this crossroads and asks the question who are you going to follow? Because as humans, in spite of the, the, the propaganda that gets shoved down our throat through media, through through all kinds of of ways in our life and the busyness and chaos of the world. Um, We are all, regardless, we are all followers by nature. Whether you like it or not, we will all follow something. The question is, who are you going to follow? Now, with that in the back of your mind, what I want to do is sort of take this text, uh, just sort of line by line, and highlight a few things. And I think it has some, some... Uh, Pretty specific implications for us as well. So, here we go. Let's go back to chapter 3, verse 17. Paul goes on to say, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. He says, follow me now. Follow my example. Keep in mind, this comes at the end of Paul's autobiography. He just said, listen, I gave up everything to follow Jesus. I consider it all lost, a loss, right? He's like, all of that is gone. I have made my choice. And Paul says, you should do the same. And that line, follow me um, or join with me, or, can be translated as be imitators of me. Or even um, many commentators say it's actually better interpreted as be imitators with me. Okay? Be imitators with me. What, what are we imitating? He's basically saying, follow me while I follow Christ, right? Christ, the Messiah, the King. He says, join in following my example. Imitate with me um, Jesus. Let's follow Jesus together as a community. Let's all do this wild, radical thing. And then he goes on to say, um, you have this as a model. Uh, Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And now 
What is the end goal? What, why are we, what are we leading to? What is the telos? What is the, the, the horizon that one day we're going to see all of this make total sense? And Paul says, look, there's coming a day when every human on planet will stand in front of the creator God and some will be resurrected and some will be destroyed. Now, this is a really terrifying thing. This is why Paul says, with tears in my eyes, I share this with you. There are some who are going to be destroyed. Like, he feels it. It's not just something he's, he's saying. He's writing with tears dripping onto the letter. Like, he's, he feels the heaviness of this. That one day, there will be people wiped off the map, written off the story, their destiny, their future. It says their end is destruction. It's all over. He says their God is their stomach. The God meaning what they worship. Now, the stomach in the first century uh, is a Greek euphemism for bodily appetites, for particular urges and cravings and desires. Okay? That could be food or drink or, or sex, whatever, whatever the body urges and desires. They're all what it mean, part of what it means to be human. And while our, des- our desires are what it means to be human, there are moments when things that are good, food is good, a good creation for us to enjoy, can all of a sudden become not good. Um, the food in Philippi, believe it or not, was known for being very good. I love the food in Wichita. My wife and I went to uh, the Magnolia Cafe. It's a southern-style cafe just down the road on Woodlawn. had the uh, green fried tomatoes and the shrimp and grits. Very good, right? Um, there's very good food here. There's very good food in Philippi. And the point of Paul, he's not saying food is bad. He's saying, no, this is a good creation by God. But when it is abused, it becomes what? It becomes gluttony. It becomes bad for your body. The Philippians would understand this. It wasn't just food, it was drink. Wine is a good creation, right? Jesus was at a wedding where people were already partying, having a good time, and then he made more wine. Like, that is a good creation, but when it becomes abused, it leads to what? Drunkenness, right? And that is not good. It harms the body. And so we see these things that, that are good creation turned wrong, Anything you take out of its right context, the way it was designed to be enjoyed, is when it begins to enter into this things that lead towards destruction. Sex, in the right context, is a good and beautiful gift from God. In the wrong context, turns to pain, regret, abuse, and shame. This is their city. Okay, these, this is what was being wrestled with. He says their God was their stomach. And then he says their glory is in their shame. What does that line mean? I've, I was thinking about this quite a bit. What, what is Paul trying to get at there? Um, it's one thing to sin with your stomach, okay, with your bodily appetites. It's another thing to glory in the shame and flaunt your shame, to brag about your shame, to Instagram or tweet your shame. I mean, we live in a culture where people live off of glorying in their shame. Think reality TV, okay? It's the first example that came to mind. Um, celebrity culture, Tinder hookup culture, where 
Sex becomes a commodity. It becomes a way we talk about, the way we sort of move in the world, and it becomes, it loses this idea of it's a sacred, beautiful creation. What happens when we flaunt our shame? Now, what does he mean by earthly things? Because earthly, the earth is, is a good creation. What, what does he mean by this? Does he mean your job or your body or your life or your family or clothing? What, what does he mean here? Well, he actually answers this question in Colossians. And Paul's, I mean, he's kind of a genius. He is a genius. Um, but a lot of, many scholars think he wrote Philippians and Colossians in the same prison. That's... Um, I don't know that for sure, but many speculate that those were written at the same time. In fact, he uses, um, there are some who dispute Paul's authorship uh, in a few different places, but the language he uses is so similar that I think those, those cases don't hold a ton of water. Um, in fact, in Colossians, uh, he uses this exact same language. He says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Okay, there's that, that word again. And he defines what earthly things are. He says um, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. And when we think of idolatry, I I think that that word has different implications for us today. Less Buddha, more Range Rover. uh, If you drive a Range Rover, that's great. It's very functional. But you you get my point. Like it's luxury. It's it's top of the the line. Um, We make idols out of good things, okay? We put them above all else. Greed, which is by default a form of idolatry, um, is we make anything ultimate other than Jesus, and that leads anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. These are all language that Paul used when he describes earthly things. He says the marker these are the markers of the things of people whose destiny is destruction. Slander, filthy language from your lips. That's what Paul means when he's talking about earthly things. Now, he says their mind is set up. It's wrapped in the enemy. So, so yeah, he, uh, he says consumed by sexual immorality, lust, greed, idolatry, rage. Um, Paul says watch out, okay? This is what is leading towards this destruction. Now, we don't know exactly who uh, the enemies of the cross are. There's a lot of speculation. Um, Some people think it's the philosopher Epicurus who coined the phrase, you are what you eat, okay? That he was sort of the enemy of the cross and was sort of starting these cults. But but there are many who I think it's actually the Judaizers, okay? Because Paul references them as dogs in the previous uh, few lines earlier. And so maybe that's who he's referring to. I don't know who he's specifically referring to here. But I think the point is crystal clear. The point Paul is is making here is, look, don't follow people like that. And he's warning them with tears. He's saying, don't follow people like that. That is going to lead to your ruin, your destruction. Instead, follow with me as I follow Jesus. And then in verse 20, he turns a corner and he goes on to say, but our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus, the king of the world, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious bodies. Now, I think this 
paragraph is one of the least understood passages and worst, badly interpreted passages uh, by many Christians um, throughout history, mostly in modern history. What is Paul saying here? I think Paul is saying there are two colonies with two futures. So first off, what are are these two colonies? Um, First, we have our citizenship in heaven, which can be translated, we are a colony of heaven. Now, keep in mind that Philippi was a colony of Rome. And to sort of better understand this, you have to understand the background of a colony, how a colony works. And I've talked on this a little bit, but if you would indulge me for three minutes, I'm going to nerd out real quick. Um, Sorry, I took a class on Paul, and these parts get me really pumped. So... Here we go. The Roman Empire, as you know, was not the first empire to conquer the world. Um, It had been done by the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. Who am I missing? The Greeks, with Alexander the Great. Um, It had been done before, but what made Rome unique was Rome was the first empire to not only conquer the, the world, but also to, like, continue conquering. Like, it wasn't two or three years that they had conquered the world. No, no, no. It was hundreds of years that they were in power. And so the genius of how the Roman Empire was able to do this was because of how they used colonies. They had a network of them. Now, a colony was way more than just a city planted by Rome. A colony was a microcosm of Roman law, meaning when you were a colony like Philippi, you were on Roman soil Even if you were in Greece or in Egypt or in Jerusalem, you were still on Roman soil. It means you were exempt from all the heavy, suffocating taxes that were put on all the other um, concord nations that were surrounding. So you you didn't have to pay all these taxes. You got the benefits of being in the empire. You, You were kept safe from other invasions. So you got all the benefits of being in Rome while still being your own unique colony. You got the perks, basically of living in Rome without actually living there. And what was a colony's job? So the converse side is as a colony, you had a role to play. You were to bring Rome's rule and culture to the city. You were uh, their governing authority, law, justice, order, culture, arts, architecture, music, dress, language, philosophy, religion, all of it. You were to usher that in and sort of create that culture where you were placed. In other words, you were to Romanize the city in the region all around the city so that it looked very much like Rome. So Rome plants these colonies in very strategic places all throughout the empire and popu- populated these colonies with Romans. Philippi, for example, um, was planted in 42 BC after the Battle of Philippi, a few miles outside the city. Now, um, if you paid attention in high school and history, you, you may remember this. This was all new for me as I was, I was looking at my notes from, from seminary. But essentially what happened was Augustus Caesar goes to war with Brutus uh, in the Roman Civil War. Brutus takes a beating, to say the least, and the battle is won right outside of Philippi. And then Octavian is, is stocked with t- tens and thousands of Roman soldiers, and he says, let's plant a colony right here. So instead of tens of thousands of rowdy soldiers, you know, causing a ruckus in Rome, 
Like, let's send them out because we, they're going to be, they're all going to have PTSD from the war. They're going to, you know, they're all going to be getting drunk in the, in the bars. Like, we don't want them all here. Let's go send them to make a new colony. And so right in the heart of Macedonia, you have tens of thousands of war veterans. And they sort of live in this, this sort of crowded space. And now you have sort of an understanding of, of, of like just the, just the uniqueness of, of sort of how this place came to be. So what, what does all this mean and why does this matter? It means when Paul went to the church in Philippi, the citizenship, for him to say that it was not in Rome, but that our citizenship was in heaven, he's writing to people who have a deep ingrained loyalty to the empire. These were people who fought and battled in arms. They were blessed by Caesar. And he's saying, understand me, our citizenship is not actually here. I know it feels that way, but it's actually not in Rome. Our col- we're not in a colony of Rome, but rather we are a colony of heaven. We have a whole different way of seeing and viewing the world. Now, I don't think that's when many people read this passage, that's what they think of. Um, I think what I've often heard taught or what I've always come to understand was um, we belong to another world. Our citizenship is heaven. We're just passing through. And one day I'm going to go to heaven when I die, and, and, and that's great. And, and I think what that does is when we sort of read it like that, it sort of gives us a, a, an implicit passive, pacifist perspective, or not the wrong word, but a passive perspective on how we should go through life, that we're just sort of marching through life willy-nilly, and then one day we'll be in heaven with God. We'll go to church, we'll, we'll uh, sort of go through the motions, we'll live in a Christian subculture, um, get a Christian mechanic, Christian doctor, Christian therapist, Christian hairstylist, Christian car, you know, a, a Chrysler. <laughs> that was bad. That was really bad. I googled, what is a Christian car joke, and that came up. I should have left it out of the sermon, I'm sorry. But here's my point. Paul is not calling us to live in a Christian bubble, okay? He's calling us to something different. If you um, have heard the theologies, and we've talked about this quite a bit in our Revelation series, that sort of understand rapture theology, that one day God will simply take um, humanity up into the air with him, and that we will somehow go to some other place and, and sort of like an essence somewhere else. Paul's saying that's the exact opposite of what's happening. If you were a Roman uh, in the first century in Philippi, your hope was never to go back to Rome. No, your hope was to bring Rome to Philippi. And Paul is sort of playing into this idea. The colony worked the other way around. Paul's saying in the same way as Philippians, as citizens of the eternal city, um, where you're supposed to bring Rome's rule and reign to the city, what he's saying is you and I are called to bring the, the, the sort of beauty and essence of heaven to earth. We are called as Christians here in Wichita, Kansas, to be a part of that process where Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. It's colliding now. And there's going to be one day when that's fully, fully consummated. But right now, you play a role in that today. This is the kingdom of God. The rule, the reign, the presence of God here on earth. So heaven's culture, heaven's art, 
heaven's architecture. And yes, there is architecture in heaven. Stick around on our Sundays. We're preaching. We're getting to the end of Revelation, Revelation 22. We talk about some of the architecture in heaven. Um, it's full of a beautiful city. Um, we are called to bring this heavenly culture to our neighborhoods, to our schools, workplace, family, body, relationships, our marriages, our children, our art, our music. We are called to bring heaven on earth. We participate in that. And it's not by the way of Rome, which was the way of the sword. It's not the way of power or violence or legislation, but we're called to do it in the way of the cross, which seems so backwards, that by laying your life down for someone else, by acting out of love, by sacrifice, that we somehow create a different vision of being in the world. This is the Messiah-shaped life. Dying to your past, as we talked about last week. Dying to you and your rights and your privileges and rising in a whole new way with the power of the cross. Not in the vein of Caesar, but in the vein of Jesus because we're a colony of heaven. And secondly, okay, so we have two colonies, um, Rome and heaven. We also have two futures, Okay, and Paul makes this pretty crystal clear. Um, he says, their destiny is destruction, but we, on the other hand, eagerly await a Savior um, from heaven. So the story of God um, not, doesn't really end, but it leads up to the return of Jesus and the return of heaven, where heaven and earth have this collision. Now, I think for the vast majority of Christians, especially in the West, they have a vision of heaven that's a little different. That somewhere you will go when you die, some far away place. But in the, in the scriptures we see, Paul sort of explains this, it's the other way around. We see it in the end of Revelation and this illustration of the bride and the groom coming together. Um, the story of God does not end with you and me leaving to another planet or another, another dimension but rather the story of God, it's as if Jesus is coming from heaven to this planet and dragging heaven along with him. There is a collision of heaven and earth. This is, the, again, that last chapter in Revelation, the bride and the groom. It's the wedding of heaven and earth as one. Now, so what this means is that Paul's vision for heaven is not that we go to some place and we're these disembodied orbs floating around or that um, we're just floating on clouds with loincloths and arrows and bows. Um, I think this is the image we get on many artwork by Michelangelo. If you've seen many of his artwork, that's sort of the picture he paints. And I actually think that has played a bigger role in our imagination of heaven than anything else. Similar to how Dante has played a, a huge role in our imagination of hell that's not actually from the scriptures. And so we're influenced by art in so many different ways and in literature and how we think about these things. But what the Bible teaches is actually something a little different. This isn't what Paul means by heaven. Paul means, when he talks about heaven, is it's God's space, God's dimension to reality where all things will be made right and renewed on this planet. He's not going to burn this planet to a crisp, but rather create and redeem all things broken, a restoring to the original design of how we are to live in the world. And so when Paul writes, we eagerly await a Savior, because when he shows up, 
two things are going to happen, right? Jesus, one, will bring all things under his control, or in other words, uh, his kingdom under his rule, his reign, and enveloped in his presence, and he will put the world to right. No more death, no more disease, no more HIV, no more abuse, no more broken families, no more broken homes, no more mosquitoes, no more 106 degree days, right? All things will be made right. And secondly, he goes on to say, he will transform our lowly bodies, broken and flawed, cracked and dying, the, the, the parts of us that are aging, all these things will be transformed. And it's interesting, this, this line, I sat with it for a long time. What, is, what does he mean by this? I think what Paul means, it's quite literal. I think he means, when he says, we will be like his glorious body, I think he means we're going to be like Jesus is right now in his resurrected body. If you remember um, the short stories at the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when, when Jesus shows up to people, he is flesh and bone. In fact, the first thing he asks the disciples is, hey, can I get something to eat? Okay, he's hungry. He's, he's, he's fully, his body has been resurrected. This wasn't like somebody went into the, into the tomb and got him out of the ground and resuscitated him back to life. No, no, no. This is a new, glorious body. How do we know that? Well, for one, he sort of just appears and disappears in thin air, which is pretty cool. But someday in our resurrected bodies, we're going to have this cool mode of transportation, right? He just sort of shows up on the scene, which I think is amazing. Um, there's going to be a new mode of physicality. It's, it's, uh, it's not a synonym to resuscitation. It is, it is literally a new, redeemed, glorious body, a new kind of humanity, a body with flesh and blood and oxygen and food, which makes me excited that we'll still eat. Um, hopefully they'll have shrimp and grits in heaven. It's really good. I'm telling you, you need to go. Um, but here's the thing. Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, right, who comes back to life, he's saying the future for all of you who follow Jesus is that one day when all things are consummated, when all things are made new, that will be you too. But there's two futures. There's one that Paul talks about here. There's the other one that leads to destruction and ruin. For one who follow and chase Jesus and for others whose God is their stomach. And when, heaven show, when, heaven, when Jesus shows up in the future, when, when we eagerly await this Savior, heaven will be crashing into earth, making the world right, transforming our lowly bodies and all of that. I believe that God has called us not just to wait for that day, but to join in this renewal in this kingdom of God that is at work here and now. And so, the implication for us, I think, and as we wrap this up, is to ask the question, as you pray this week, as you seek the Lord, maybe ask, God, where are you at work here and now, in the place you have placed me, in Wichita, Kansas, or Andover, wherever you live, while you're here, where is God at work? Where are you at work? Would you reveal that to me? And show me how I can participate in that redemptive work while I have time. If you've been paying attention, um, there's been a lot of change happening at our church. It's been a little bit 
uh, disorienting. With, I, I was just reflecting on it the other day. I think my three closest friends and peers on staff are all leaving in like month by month by month, which is like a lot. It's a lot of change for me. Um, our church is about to go on something they've never experienced, which is Stan's going on sabbatical, and that's a really um, big thing for us. It's something we've never, never actually experienced. There's a lot of change that's happening. This service that's been um, a big part of my life, and I know for many of you who've been consistently a part of it, um, it's going to come to an end for a season. I don't know how long. It could be the end of it. It could be a pause for a season. But things are changing rapidly all around us. And I think one of the things that God has called us to do, or at least has called me to do, as I was, as I was praying and thinking about this, is to start listening very carefully and asking God to reveal that in the midst of all the change in the sort of disorientation, what new things might God be up to in our community? What new things might God be doing in the midst of things looking differently? Where do we see spaces and places where God is raising up new ideas, new dreams, new visions, and ways in which we can jump in and participate in the work that God is doing here? I find myself actually encouraged. As sad as I am for for all the change, I'm also thinking, man, God's up to something. I don't know what it is yet. Like, if I'm being honest with you, I don't have any vision. I don't have any specific things I can point to. All I know is that God is doing something new, and I'm excited to see where that is. And so would you commit with me to praying for that? That God would reveal those things to us, make it abundantly clear, would show us the places where even in our our, our immediate community and spaces around us and neighborhoods around us, that maybe God is calling us to new spaces and new places. Yeah. Amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, we, uh, we uh, started the sermon in prayer. What would happen as a community if we began with prayer? I think this is going to be a season where uh, prayer is going to become a big part of that listening process. And so I want to encourage you um, to continue to labor with me in prayer. And um, I'll close this here in a word of prayer and invite Joseph to come on up and lead us as we close our service. Uh, let's pray. Father, we know you're at work. There are times where um, we don't always know where, but we ask that you would reveal the new things that you're doing among us and through us, the ways in which uh, your spirit might be up to something that maybe we haven't been aware of, we haven't been able to see, that we've had blinders to. 
And so, Lord, we yield to that. We submit out of humility to the fact that your vision and plan for the city is far greater than anything that we could conjure up in our own minds. And we yield to the places that might make us uncomfortable where we have to step out of our our normal everyday uh, ways we think about church, the ways we think about um, how we are to live in the city as Christians and what renewal might actually be. And so, God, we leave that in your hands, trusting that you can do only what you can do. Pray all these things for your beautiful name. Amen.